I want to welcome you to this month's Gathering Storm podcast. I'm Dr. Paul Benware, and it is my privilege to spend these next few minutes with you talking about Satan and America. Most of us don't need to be told that there is a rapid and ongoing spiritual and moral decline in the world that we live in, which of course includes Western culture in America. At times, all of this seems to be in a free fall, doesn't it? Well, this uh, degenerating condition has elevated uh, tremendous fear and anxiety in people that, in some ways, uh, we haven't seen in our lifetime. Daily, the drumbeat of bad news hits us. Rising inflation rumbles of war, even nuclear ones, uh, predictions of the scarcity of food. Uh, We have attacks locally on parental authority in the public school system. We see governmental policies that are terribly foolish, if not downright evil and insane. And it goes on and on and on. How did we get where we are at today? And is there anything we can do about it? Well, we're going to answer these questions in this edition of The Gathering Storm. We can answer these not because yours truly is unusually brilliant, but rather because we have the authoritative, inerrant word of God to tell us. We not only have a clear apostolic presentation, which we're going to look at today, but also we're going to learn of two basic responses that serious believers in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, need to follow. I believe that as we begin, we need to remind ourselves of the theological stage that we are on and where this all is playing out. First, we need to remember the words of the Apostle John and. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, as he ended that epistle, he stated, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That means Russia lies in the power of the evil one. China lies in the power of the evil one. North Korea lies in the power of the evil one. And America lies in the power of the evil one as well. Now, when John speaks of the world, he is here not talking about planet Earth. Sometimes the word world, of course, is used that way, but not here. He is talking about the philosophies of Satan. Satan is the god of this world. And it is his philosophies that run the world system. So when John talks about the world as well as other writers of the New Testament, they are thinking about the philosophies, the thinking of Satan. And Jesus and Paul both say he is the God of this world. I found it helpful when I use uh, the word world 
uh, as it's found here and in other places in the New Testament, that I equate it to our culture. So the whole culture lies in the power of the evil one. So it is Satan's uh, philosophy, which, by the way, takes many forms, but which has in common leaving out the true God, the creator God. There are obviously many philosophies that Satan uses in this world with, in various, various settings, um, but it always marginalizes the Lord God, marginalizes him to a place of irrelevance. It's not necessarily atheism or a denial of God's existence. It's marginalizing him to the place where he really isn't that relevant. You see, there may be some nice things about Satan's philosophies, because if everything was raw evil, people who have been given a conscience by God built into their system will be repulsed by it. And, of course, this shouldn't surprise us. He appears as an angel of light, Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11. But Jesus also declared that Satan is a liar, so that when he traffics in truth, it is always with deception. And in fact, he is called that regularly, as in the book of Revelation. He is the deceiver. Revelation 12.9 notes that, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, deceives the whole world. And as we're on this theological stage where the play is being played out, we must be aware of a very basic uh, reality, and that is the battle is for the mind of man. It's always been that way. It's that way since the Garden of Eden, when Satan said to Adam and Eve, Has God said? So, God's truth versus the deceptive, counterfeit ideas of the devil. The Apostle Paul understood this completely, and he stated in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you catch that? He blinds the minds. It's not that he dulls the emotions. He blinds the minds of people. And he does that through his own philosophies. Later on, to the Corinthian church, in that same letter of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 10, uh, Paul declares there, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lost, lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
Every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Later on, after writing to the Corinthians, Paul wrote to Timothy and told him that when dealing with false teaching within the church, he must teach the truth, the truth of God that had been given to him. But he must do so with patience and with kindness, because those embracing these false ideas are, quote, in the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Behind false teaching in the church as well as in the culture, it is not the man, it is not a man that originates them, but rather it is Satan. As Paul would again say to Timothy, pay attention to that false teachers, pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Proverbs said millennia before this, that as a man thinks within himself, so is he. And this is, of course, an important reality, that what a person thinks and believes to be true will directly dictate his or her attitudes as well as their behaviors. The battle is always for the mind because that will affect behaviors and attitudes. These verses that we've just mentioned are just a few of the many that reveal the battle for the mind and that uh, this has been Satan's tactics ever since the Garden of Eden when he cast doubt there on on the Word of God. And of course, Satan uh, distorts the Word of God whenever he can. So with all this in mind, we are going to see the Apostle Paul's insightful presentation on what happens to a person or a nation or a culture that leaves God's truth. They leave it thinking that it's not true, it's just not relevant, it's certainly not valid. But when they turn from God's truth, they always, of necessity, will turn to something else. And it's always to Satan's counterfeit philosophies, Satan's truth, if you wish. Let us go on uh, and look now at uh, Romans chapter 1, where we have the Apostle Paul's powerful and authoritative declaration. Uh, And here we see exactly what is going on in the culture around us. So let's take a look at this. If you have your Bible and you can open it or your phone, um, please do so. Now, if you're driving, uh, don't do that. But let's take a look at Romans chapter 1 and take a quick stroll through, uh, noting some of the key words and ideas that Paul presents, and also observe the inevitable consequences that will take place when people leave the truth of God. Now, the, the, the section that we are going to focus on in Romans 1 starts with verse 18. However, uh, before we get there, um, in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 17, 
uh, Paul has spoken about the uh, power and the wonder of the gospel. And Paul declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason is that it alone is able to change people. See, the Roman government, as powerful and all the authority that it had, couldn't do any of that. And the result was that uh, Roman society was filled with suicides and and sins and evils of all kinds, violence and crime. This is what characterized Roman culture. The gospel, which by the way is not just the message of salvation, but it is all of God's truth. The gospel delivers people from fear and anxiety and hopelessness the very things that seem to be in, uh, just infiltrating our culture today in America. God's righteousness, Paul tells us, becomes our righteousness through simple faith in Jesus. And that sets us free. We are liberated from the guilt of sin and we are given life eternal, that is, the life of God himself. And then, suddenly, as it were, Paul's pen explodes at verse 18 with words of judgment. The gospel is needed. The gospel is necessary because of God's wrath, which is hovering over mankind. So, In um, chapter 1 and verse 18, down through verse 32, we have what is undoubtedly the clearest, most logical uh, analysis of the human condition, but also of the condition of the United States of America, the world that you and I live in. Verse 18 reads, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, as we get started, and as we look at the words and the flow of Paul's thought here, guided by the Holy Spirit. I want us to make sure that we understand the big picture of what he is declaring. And I would like to give it to you in one sentence. I will repeat this sentence because if you happen to have a pen handy, you might want to write this down because I think this will uh, encompass the discussion. And so when we are done, you'll have the big picture of what Paul is saying. Here's what he is declaring, that when a culture or a nation or even an individual, when a culture, nation, or individual rejects God's revelation, the result will always, emphasis upon always, always be widespread, pervasive idolatry and a deep moral decline. Let me give that again. When a culture, 
a nation, a person, rejects God's revelation, the result will always be widespread, pervasive idolatry and deep moral failure. You see, the cause is the rejection of God's revelation. The consequences are always twofold. Pervasive idolatry, number one, and number two, deep moral decline. And I think it's instructive to note that Paul does not give any exceptions uh, to this basic principle. This is the way it always works. So, um, we need, of course, to keep in mind that when God's truth is rejected, the vacuum is always filled by Satan's counterfeit philosophies, which are the world system that we live in. Now, we read verses 18 and 19 of, of Romans 1, and let me define a couple of words which I think are important so we begin to tighten our grip on what Paul is saying. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. I would have you observe that this is a present tense. In other words, that while there is a future wrath of God, which we generally refer to as the tribulation, there is also a present aspect of the wrath of God. And what is the wrath of God anyway? Well, I define it this way, that God's wrath is his passionate response against sin, which will lead eventually to its punishment, or in this case, where the punishment is present, and we'll explore what that looks like. But we are seeing in our culture the wrath of God, and it isn't necessarily uh, fire from heaven or sudden terrible natural disasters. It really, it really has to do with God taking his hands off of mankind who has rejected his truth and allowing mankind to experience the consequences of his choices and of his following Satan's philosophies. So um, it is sort of like the withdrawal uh, to a large extent of the mercies of God. So <clears throat> there is this present aspect um, to the wrath of God. And it says, uh, Paul says, that it is revealed from heaven. So it's, it's going to be something observable. And who's it targeting? Well, it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So <clears throat> this wrath of God uh, can be seen probably in a variety of ways, um, certainly through uh, premature death, um, damage done physically to a person through sickness, their disease, and so on. And and really, this is not new. This is something Proverbs says happens when when people leave God's wisdom. Um, they get uh, the natural consequences of bad choices. So that, yeah, they're um, 
their drug abuse does have an effect upon mind and upon body. Uh, their immorality and um, uh, does have an effect on the diseases that can enter into the body. Uh, they can um, uh, they begin to experience uh, life without His mercy, no uh, shielding really from sin's consequences. Lives that end up being aimless, meaningless, filled with stress, worry, fear, um, without any um, uh, fulfillment, um, a kind of mental confusion. Life doesn't make sense. Continual and ongoing um, bad choices and bad thinking. So there, there is a present reality of the wrath of God. Now, Thinking precedes both actions and attitudes. And so Paul says uh, in verse uh, 18 that the wrath of God targets um, people. Which ones? Well, first of all, um, all ungodliness. Well, what is ungodliness anyway? Well, ungodliness is really an attitude that disregards God. Um, It is acting as though he doesn't exist. It is the, quote, secular attitude. Again, uh, ungodliness does not deny that God exists. In other words, it's it's not atheism, but that God is irrelevant to daily life. And what do we see in America today? Town councils, state senates, federal government, political leaders, they not only do not Uh, seek God's presence and guidance, and there are exceptions, of course. But um, they they make their decisions and their laws uh, as though God doesn't exist. He is, if he's around somewhere, he's way out there on the periphery of life. And this is the prevailing attitude in our culture today. So ungodliness is not a denial of God's existence, but it's a denial of his rightful place over his creation. And ungodliness then produces unrighteousness. If God isn't around, if his laws are irrelevant, if his truth can be ignored with impunity, then men are going to, because of their sin nature, into enter into unrighteousness of all kinds. So he then says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. They they hold it down. Um, They hinder the truth. See, mankind intuitively, because of conscience that was built into them, know that there is a creator God. They know that um, he has laws and regulations, but they suppress this truth. Uh, Ever been in a swimming pool and uh, tried to submerge totally a partially inflated air mattress that's floating around in the pool? Well, what happens? You push down one part of that air mattress and the other part of it pops up to the surface. And if you get enough people there and work hard enough, maybe you can get the whole thing underwater. But a lot of effort. 
See, God's truth is everywhere, and it constantly pops up to the surface. It breaks through into man's experience, and yet man is busily trying to suppress God's truth. And really, it's an amazing thing, because God's truth, uh, when um, embraced and lived by, makes life infinitely more present, uh, pleasant, excuse me. Um, how does man suppress it anyway? Well, primarily through man, uh, false philosophies. They are man's philosophies, and Paul warns against that in, in Colossians 2 when he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Well, obviously behind man's philosophies are, are really Satan's. These, in fact, are doctrines of demons. Well, how does man suppress God's truth? Well, these alternate philosophies. How about evolution? Uh, let's get rid of God. Um, we, he's irrelevant. We don't need to bring him into um, uh, life at all. Uh, so he, evolution teaches us that, that just everything around us just came about. Uh, there are no longer absolutes. They are disappearing very rapidly from our culture, aren't they? Uh, pluralism, humanism, um, your truth, I have my truth, you have your truth, all that kind of stuff. And the problem is, of course, that the church, which is to be the bastion of God's truth, um, has allowed culture to begin to modify very clear doctrines of the word of God. And so <clears throat> mankind um, has been, in fact, suppressing truth. And we see that uh, in our culture today in, in so many ways. So notice in verse um, uh, 20, or verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. Uh, this is the reason for God's wrath. Not just because man sins, because he have, but rather because he has willfully rejected God's revelation and substituted for it Satan's philosophies. Paul says in verse 9 that it is evident. In other words, uh, this is something that is clear. Uh, God has revealed truth about himself. He's not concealed truth. God puts out his knowledge about him in creation, and it's clearly seen. The easiest thing in the universe is to believe that God is there. You must work very hard at convincing yourself that he's not there. Only, I guess, really brilliant people are able to do that. So, creation teaches a couple of very basic things, according to verse 20. Um, there exists a God who is intelligent, first of all. And secondly, there exists a God who is powerful and supreme. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made so that they are without excuse. So there it is. The truth of God, which, of course, has now been enhanced 
uh, and detailed in marvelous ways by the scriptures and by the appearance of Jesus, who is the capstone of God's creation. So, um, what happens when man does this? Well, this is the point. When a culture or a nation rejects God's revelation, the result will always be, number one, widespread pervasive idolatry, and number two, deep moral decline. So, let's take a look at what Paul says in uh, verses 21 to 23, which has to do with the descent into a pervasive kind of idolatry. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile, empty in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And is verse 22 not so clear and represents, um, points to the culture that we are living in and the people in it. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So, what does man do when he turns from God, even though uh, truth about God is very clear? He descends into idolatry. He ignores God, even though they knew God. It's not necessarily that they say hateful things about God, but they sense no real obligation or accountability to him. As they descend into idolatry, they always claim wisdom. And they lose the ability to discriminate between uh, truth and, and falsehood, between right and wrong, becomes unclear, blurred, and uh, as noted, fewer and fewer absolutes. Remember several times in the Old Testament prophets that Israel had come to the place where they called good evil and evil good. Well, in America, we have arrived at that place. And it's interesting that uh, Paul, when he talks to Timothy about false teachers, made some a very interesting observation about them. He says of the false teachers that they deceive and they deceive themselves. You see, when a person proclaims falsehood long enough, they suck themselves into it. They themselves believe it. And we look at our culture and the amazing um, uh, things that are said, the philosophies that are put forth that are uh, absolutely insane. They are so far away from reality, and yet the people saying it, saying these things, say it with conviction. Why? Well, they have said it enough. They are now deceiving themselves as well. So they may uh, claim uh, to wisdom, uh, but one of the results is that they can no longer dis- 
make a discriminatory evaluation of truth and error. Right, wrong becomes blurred. And the result is that they have darkened hearts. Um, They claim to have answers that are insightful, but in reality, their wisdom, their philosophies cannot solve the basic problems of life. Uh, by the way, that's what Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians one twenty and 21, that uh, a man's wisdom simply can't solve the problems of life. And we see that. Why is it that we cannot control crime? Why is it that uh, things just seem to be more and more out of control? Because in the wisdom of these individuals, um, as they call it, there is no solution, there's no ability to solve the real problems. Well, man then descends into idolatry, according to Paul. And having suppressed the truth about God, and having refused to acknowledge God, which has to do uh, with worshiping, worshiping him and glorifying him, man now has nobody, nothing uh, to worship. But man is built to worship. And so he has to, as he's done throughout the ages, create his own objects of worship. Now our society here in America is not into uh, totem poles in the backyard or sacrificing the neighbor's dog to some idol that you have. But we do have our gods. Our culture is filled with them. And like the Egyptians, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of deities. They have no real glory. They have no real value. But we have sports figures, rock stars, movie stars, men and women that are adored and followed and liked on social media by tens of thousands and even millions And yet they're cardboard characters, aren't they? They have no real substance. But we not only worship um, these gods, men and women in, in the sports world and rock stars and movie stars, but we worship concepts like youthfulness, beauty, comfort, pleasure. These are the objects of our affections. We worship forces in our culture, greed, sex, power. We worship things like houses and money, cars and yachts and all of those things. But like all idols, they cannot satisfy. They cannot give purpose to life. And they cannot keep away the wrath of God either. So... Paul says in verses 21 to 23, men ignore God. They treat God like uh, perhaps a senile old man in a nursing home that uh, we pat on the head, but we don't include in any meaningful way in our lives. They ignore God. They claim to be wise, but they've lost their ability to discern between right and wrong which is so much a part of our culture today. And there is full-blown idolatry. God is dethroned. And um, so 
Our gods are now superstars and concepts and forces and things. These idols cannot satisfy. But <clears throat> there is another um, step that uh, that society takes, which is detailed in much greater detail in verses 24 uh, to 31. So what uh, Paul is saying is that when a culture leaves the truth of God, two things inevitably happen. Number one, there is widespread pervasive idolatry. And of course, this is what the consequence of embracing Satan's philosophies are. But the second step down is um, a moral decline, a deep, pervasive moral decline. We'll need to walk through this somewhat quickly, but I want you to notice, first of all, um, the threefold time that Paul uses the term God gave them up or God gave them over. In verse 24, uh, because of their idolatry, uh, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. This deep moral decline has three steps to it, each signaled by the phrase, God gave them over or God gave them up. Now, by the way, when Paul uses the phrase, God gave them over or God gave them up, he is not saying that God is walking away from mankind in utter disgust, wiping his hands clean. Um, it is part of God's wrath. He removes his restraining influence. He lets men do their thing, and men will experience the unpleasant, painful consequences. But he is not saying that if an individual should turn to him, that he will, with folded arms, just turn his back on that man. The point that he is making here is that men and cultures um, and nations come to the place where they are no longer savable. And we will see that uh, in the book of Hosea. In fact, let me read that. Uh, in Hosea, uh, the prophet is talking to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, and they have gotten so bad that there is simply no hope for them any longer. And there are a couple of verses. First, uh, Hosea chapter 4 and verse 17 he writes, Ephraim, which is a synonym for the northern kingdom of Israel, it being the most uh, powerful tribe within that nation. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their liquor gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. Chapter 5, verse 4. He makes this insightful statement. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Listen again to that first um, part of that verse. 
their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. Hosea is saying what Paul is saying in Romans 1, that people can come to the place where they have passed the point of no return. Not that they are not savable should they turn, but the point is they will not turn. They will not turn back to God again. And so God gives them over. He says, okay, that's what you want to do. Fine. Um, So there are three steps down in this pervasive uh, moral decline. The first step down is that of sexual immorality becoming an accepted uh, way of life. Verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God, God's truth about sex, for a lie, Satan's idea about it all, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Immorality, you see, degrades and dishonors people. They've left God's truth about the wonders of what he has created in male and female. They've exchanged that for lies, Satan's lies. They don't realize that what they are doing, approving, pursuing um, immorality is such a damaging and very degrading uh, thing. You know, today people try and satisfy their hungers and cravings and desires apart from God. God has created people for fellowship and intimacy with himself. Um, That's the ultimate void in our hearts. Why has God given mankind a sexual capacity? Well, sex in marriage has been given to help uh, bring about intimacy between two people, to fill a void. When people are immoral... It is not so much that they are seeking sexual excitement and pleasure, though they think that's what they're doing. Many don't realize that what is really driving them is that it is a desire to achieve um, fulfillment, to, to fill that void in life, which only God and his truth can, uh, can fill. And, you know, it's a terrible thing when a person gets caught up in um, immoral lifestyle where they're going from one sexual experience to another um, it's bad enough when this is true of an individual but it is crippling when it is true of society so that's the first thing that happens men set aside God's standard of morality and um, they indulge in what God has declared to be immoral In the second step, um, which is found in verse 26, uh, Paul says this. This is now the second step in in societal uh, decline, is that of homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons 
the due penalty of their error. Well, what is all that about? Well, first of all, it's very clear that homosexuality is a a sin. It is declared in Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20, verse 13. Uh, You have it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, the fact that uh, this is uh, simply against uh, God's standard. Um, The Apostle Paul knew full well about homosexuality. Uh, In the culture of Paul's day, 14 of the first 15 emperors of Rome were homosexual. Um, Many of them were openly, blatantly homosexual, such as uh, Nero, who married an effeminate young boy. But men like Socrates and other notable Greek philosophers were homosexuals. Homosexual marriage was very much a part of Greek society. Now, in our culture today, uh, Sigmund Freud developed the idea that homosexuality was a mental disorder acquired uh, because of having a domineering mother. Havelock Ellis wrote a book, Sexual Inversion, in the 1930s. He's not familiar, nor is his book, uh, to people today. But he taught that homosexuals were born that way, um, that God made them that way. And as a result, there will always be a certain percentage of people who are homosexuals in a culture. And of course, we can see that's reflected in the thinking of our culture today. Alfred Kinsey in the 1950s um, began dramatically changing society's views. Uh, Kinsey was really biased, badly biased against Judeo-Christian ethics. And um, he said that all, all people have bisexual tendencies, therefore preference for the same sex is just as normal as those of the opposite sex. So we see right there that uh, what God says is being replaced by what man says, but behind man's philosophies stands the God of this world. So as a result, today, um, homosexuality is no longer publicly condemned. It's certainly not uh, politically correct to do so. Um, there are laws being written and uh, to support uh, homosexuality, um, and many laws that were on the books have been removed, and it is simply an alternate lifestyle, and um, uh, one must be careful that otherwise it's a seen as a hate crime. But Paul says that God gives them over, and there are consequences to this behavior, and um, such things as uh, tremendously high suicide rates which really are not broadcast unless, if they are mentioned, it's because uh, these uh, folks commit suicide because of the pressures of our society, uh, the old leftover Judeo-Christian stuff that's doing that. But there is tremendous confusion psychologically and spiritually that occurs in the lives of these folks. Now, God's love, mercy, and grace is uh, available to all men, including those who are homosexuals. Homosexuality is a sin. It's not a gift. It's not good. It's not from God. And any homosexual or anyone else who wants to be liberated and forgiven by Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior, can experience the cleansing. 
this was true in the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, the same kind of people who uh, lived in uh, Corinth live in America today. Um, the third step down, though, is uh, uh, mentioned beginning in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things that are not uh, proper. So the first step down in a culture's moral decline is where sexual immorality is accepted as a way of life. No big deal. uh, Step step two down is homosexuality. Uh, Sexual perversions of various kinds are open and they are accepted. The third step down is the one being mentioned in verses 28 to 32, that uh, callousness, an abandoned mind, is now created that's uh, really insensitive to right and wrong. And it manifests itself in brutality and lawlessness of all kinds. God gives them over, Paul says, to an abandoned mind or a depraved mind. What is that? Well, it's a, it's a person without any conscience. They are deadened to right and wrong callousness towards others and so uh, brutality comes and the person could care less that they have just brutalized someone it's wrapped up in uh, an account some years ago but uh, where a couple a young man and a young woman went into an apartment in Chicago and they found an old couple there and they slaughtered the couple stole uh, money and whatever uh, thing of value they could get their hands on, and then they went out and had breakfast. That callous kinds of indifference uh, is what Paul is talking about, and we are seeing that more and more. And they, um, Paul goes on to say, God gives them over to this abandoned mind. They are socially dead people, as it were. They are being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, and um, disobedient to parents. And it goes down with a list of about 15 things. When God removes the restraints on a society which disregards him and suppresses his truth, what happens? Well, he lists all kinds of things, but violence of all kinds begins to skyrocket. Does this sound like what we are seeing today? There is senseless, wanton vandalism, a a callous disregard for human life. There is very little respect for authority. That's what's wrapped up in the phrase disobedient to parents, because when you have the collapse of the family, it is the the signal, really, of the collapse of, of the culture. This is the inevitable consequence of Satan's philosophies when God's truth is uh, replaced with Satan's false teachings. Well, you'll have to take a look at the rest of uh, this, but one final thing in verse 32. It says, although they know the ordinance of God, there's that built-in consciousness there. 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Is this not what we're seeing uh, so clearly in our culture? Things worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give heartily approval. Look at our educational system and what they are telling children about sexuality, about a number of other things. The media, social media, technology, what the law is doing, the politicians out to legitimatize sin. They not only know that these things are wrong, but they give hearty approval of them. Now, in light of these grim realities, what should we do? Well, no serious follower of the Lord Jesus Christ will do what a growing number in our culture are doing, uh, that is, anesthetizing themselves with drugs, alcohol, pornography, and so on. We might try focusing on more innocent pleasures or perhaps getting lots of money and material possessions, but we probably know these things are really mirages, appearing to have substance, but in the end proving empty. While many good suggestions might be given, on how the serious believer should handle the cultural reality that we are living in right now. Perhaps two will be uh, proved to be helpful. Number one, and I think the main one, we must change our focus from the depressing decline all around us to a fresh focus on the greatness and the attributes of the Lord our God. We must do our theological exercises, that is, Go back to truth. Go back again and again. Renew our minds regarding the power, might, magnificence of our God. Many of us believers today are much like a person that Martin Luther wrote to long ago, telling him, quote, your God is too human, end quote. We all have this tendency to think of God as too much like ourselves, We need the fresh perspective that the Bible gives us. We need to go back again and again. Several passages come to scripture, uh, come to mind, scriptures that will be helpful, I think, in helping us focus our attention back on God. Isaiah chapter 40 and um, verse 12, all the way down through Uh, Verse 26. Let me just read a couple of verses showing the greatness of God. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand? You get that? There are the oceans. Look at the hollow of your hand, that little indentation there. God puts the oceans of the earth in his hand. He's pretty big. And marked off the heavens by a span. That is from his little finger to his thumb. That's where the universe fits. And yeah, they're on planet Earth with all those rebels running around rejecting his truth where this theological stage is being played out with Satan versus God. Yeah, that's how great God is. The whole universe fits between his thumb and his um, little finger. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless, 
Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. Isaiah chapter 40. Read it again and again. And then one of my favorites has become Psalm 2, where uh, David uh, stands in just unbelief that the nations and the people and the leaders of the earth think they can actually rebel successfully against God. Why are the nations in an uproar, Psalm 2 says, and the people's devising a vain thing, these things that aren't going to succeed. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against the Messiah, against Jesus. They hate Jesus. He who sits in the heaven laughs. He's unthreatened. He's unfazed by it all. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury. And then I love this statement in verse 6. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Uh, God has already uh, installed Jesus as king. It's so certain that the few, that the uh, that it's put in the present tense, and the psalm goes on to declare um, what God has given to the Son, the nations of the earth as thine inheritance, and so <clears throat> um, Psalm two. Another portion to read that you might find interesting to help in your theological exercises and refocusing is Job chapter 38 to 41. Um, That's that section where God asks Job all kinds of questions um, and reveals his absolute greatness. So how do we face the grim realities that we face today? Number one, we must change the focus from focusing on what's going on around us. I'm not saying we aren't aware of it, of course, or being naive about it but a fresh focus on the greatness and the attributes of the Lord our God. If you have not read or not read recently A.W. Tozer's little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I would highly recommend that uh, you read it. This will strengthen your mind. And um, this masterful little book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. The second thing that we need to do is to put on the entire armor of God. Um, it brings stability into our lives and protects us in many, many ways. Most of us are familiar with Ephesians 6, uh, 20, or 10 to 20. And um, there are so many things that we could say about it, but I just want to uh, underscore a couple of things. First of all, Paul says that we are to do two things. We are to stand firm and that we are to put on the armor of God. Uh, Standing firm uh, and putting on the armor of God are commands that are given to us. In other words, we are to do these things. Um, He reminds us that our struggle um, is not against flesh and blood, but it's against Satan. It's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These four categories of Satan's organization tell us of the, of the power and the, uh, 
the organized approach that Satan comes to us in this battle. But it's a battle for the mind. And therefore, we're to put on the armor of God. And I want you to note something as we uh, quickly wrap this up now, that all of the pieces of armor are related to the truth of God. Why? Well, because the issue is truth versus counterfeit philosophy. We're to put on the belt of truth. And it's not the idea of taping Bibles with duct tape to our bodies. Our minds learn God's truth. Truth is then translated into our living. Our living becomes honest and does not include role-playing or hypocrisy, deception, or our half-truths. The belt of truthfulness, it is God's truth being translated into the way we live. We're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is not Christ's righteousness. Uh, We have that. Rather, this is our righteous living. We live our lives according to the standards of God's holiness, according to the standards of God's truth, not according to the standards of our culture, the standards of the world, the standards of Satan's philosophy. So we live righteously based upon God's truth. We have the shoes of peace. Uh, The issue is stability in life. The Roman soldier uh, was kept from slipping in his hand-to-hand combat through uh, shoes that had little hobnails on them. The gospel, that is God's word, does this. It gives us peace with God and the peace of God because the truth that is there, it gives stability to our lives. We don't need to be living in fear, anxiety, stress, and worry. The shield of faith. Uh, It's not talking about the faith, but the principle of faith. That is, we live life according to the promises and the commitments of God. We trust him. We can hide behind, as it were, as Satan's darts are coming, what God has said. We are secure in that. And then there's the helmet of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 tells us that he's talking about the assurance of salvation. A believer who doubts his or her salvation is easily injured by Satan. The security of salvation is found in the word of God, based, of course, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we are secure. The sword of the Spirit, the last piece, is given to defend the truth of God, especially against false teaching, which is what we are to do. We are to be able to give a reasonable defense of of God's truth. Well, um, as we wrap this up, we live in a in a declining culture. It's probably um, it's safe to say it's not coming back. But in the meantime, we need to change our focus focus on God, and we need to put up make sure that the armor of God is on. We are in the world at this time because God has placed us here. And so by God's grace and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, we are able to withstand the onslaught of the devil. We are able to shield our minds and our hearts against his attacks. And I pray that that will be the case in your life and mine and um, that we will have an influence 
on those around us. May the Lord bless us as we live in this age at this time for his glory.